Greetings, church and friends of the church. It's um, mid to late March 2021. We're more now than a year into this um, season of pandemic, uh, a season we've considered as a metaphorical wilderness. Um, the wilderness is that place where we wander. We've been thrust out from what we used to know as normal, and we're wandering on our way toward a new normal that's not yet realized. Um, the wilderness is a place to reflect on ourselves and, and on the circumstances around our lives and to be transformed by that reflection so that we emerge on the other side of this wilderness wandering um, in pursuit of a future normal that's not just going back to what we knew, but is, but is better and more just and more peaceful life together. So we've used this time to look back on the life that we knew, to look more deeply within. We've sought to better understand these physical tendencies that evolved within all of us, the tendency to fight, to assume negatively about others, to tribalize with those like us that are, are physiologically um, defense mechanisms that are instinctual within every single person. And we've considered how these tendencies happen in the midst of our individual lives and how they take, how they give shape to um, our culture collectively as, as isms that are destructive. This is the racism, the antagonism, the materialism, the individualism all come from a collective expression of these instincts. Um, and they counterproductively destroy that sense of belonging and safety and peace that we, that we think we're after by following the voice of these tendencies. And so as we've wandered and looked more deeply within, we've begun to look uh, forward to the other side of this season and acknowledge the need for a spirituality, whether that's a spirituality that's grounded in a particular religious practice or not, a spirituality that counteracts these physical forces within us, a different voice speaking a different vision of who we are and how we relate to one another. And we've started to consider in this series some different spiritual practices that can nurture that spiritual, non-physical, intentional voice within us that helps us to live beyond um, these physical, instinctual, animalistic, destructive tendencies. Our, our ability to be spiritual in this way, something other than just purely physical, is what sets us apart from every other creature. Um, they cannot do this, but we can and we must. So two episodes ago, uh, we introduced the ninth spiritual practice, which is simplifying. And we're considering it slowly across a number of different episodes because there's so many layers to this. Uh, simplifying is not about um, objects, tasks, and appointments, but about intentionally adjusting our expectations. Because the goal of simplifying is not actually just to feel more efficient but to feel less worry and fear. That's, that's where that compulsion to simplify comes from, so that we might feel less worry and fear. And that worry is directly linked to the expectations that we form about others and the self and life in general. We've evolved uh, with these tendencies that make us prone to worry. And brain science tells us that when um, we physiologically experience worry that come from these tendencies in our childhood, our brain is very good at creating a pathway um, that 
expedites a few a future reactiveness to that same kind of experience it, it it makes it easier to worry about that same thing forevermore it gets easier to have expectations about the same thing that are fearful for the rest of our lives it gets easier to make assumptions about others and about life that are negative um, it, it gets easier to expect the negative so in order to simplify, to experience less worry and fear, we have to retrain our brains. Uh, we have to create new pathways um, for information when we observe it. So in the last episode, we considered how to intentionally simplify by retraining our brains to move beyond these deep-seated worries um, that have been planted within us by the forces of materialism by adapting our expectations, by training ourselves slowly but surely to stop expecting that our material possessions are gonna provide us the safety, the comfort, the acceptance, and the good life that we long for. In this episode, in a similar manner, we consider how to intentionally simplify our lives by retraining our brains to move beyond the worries and expectations that are planted within us by the forces of individualism. So if you happen to watch or listen to the episode from this series back sometime in October on the dangers of individualism as a collective expression of these physical tendencies within us, these instincts, you might remember that the purest form of individualism is not a bad thing. It essentially argues that in order for us to be all that we ought to be as a collective, we have to each be our best individual self. So if we're, if we're trying to be somebody else, we create an incomplete puzzle. And so a healthy sense of individuality and differentiation from others is critical. And in some ways, this vision of an interconnected world of everyone at their best is that future that we are seeking on the other side of this wilderness. However, this kind of individualism is, uh, the good kind is not what we are nurtured and cultured to adopt and experience as people in this day and age. Our flavor of individualism that is cultured within us is of a much more nefarious nature where the danger lies in this assertion that we don't belong to each other in this bigger collective picture and that my life is just about doing what's best for me. Now, this is called egoist anarchism individualism. It's about the ego. It's about anarchy, a lack of any sense of connection or obligation to anybody else, and individualism. It's about me. The sense of self is not just differentiated from others, but is disconnected from and in that place of disconnection is also so often antagonistic toward, if not violent against the other. We are nurtured by this ideology to falsely and tragically view each other as competing for a finite amount of every kind of life-giving resource, rather than to understand each other as collaborators in a social order in which there are enough resources for all to share so that all can flourish. So if when we were younger, we experienced a particular egoist, individualistic worry, and maybe in response to something our parents taught us or something a friend said or something we heard on a commercial, something we saw on a TV show or in a movie, 
we trained our brain as children to make it easier to have this same worry for the rest of our lives. If we were nurtured in a place of unhealthy sibling rivalry, allowed to understand our siblings as competition, that that made it easier for us to have these same expectations, not only about our siblings as we age, but about everyone else at school and work and wherever, where they are competition and not collaborators. If we learned as a child or as an adolescent that the goal of our education was not just to do our best, uh, but to do better than everyone else because we were competing for that finite resource of spaces at the right college, or that the goal in our music or art was not just to do our best and to express ourselves with joy, but to do better than everyone else because we were competing for a finite number of prize ribbons or public, rec public recognitions, or that the goal of sports was not just to do our best and to enjoy ourselves uh, with our friends, but to do better than others because we were competing for roster spots and then scholarships. Then we also learned how to worry about these things, to carry worry about competition, setting these expectations of perfectionism for ourselves that would continue to guide our emotions and our decision, decisions for the rest of our lives. It, it made it easier and it set us on that trajectory. We learned how to let fear and worry dictate how we fill up our schedules with as many hours of practice and training and repetition as possible and not enough time on the schedule for rest and leisure for fun not enough time for just living and then if we hadn't found reason and occasion to challenge and ex uh, adapt these expectations as we grew into adulthood and if we haven't intentionally retrained our brain to simplify and uh, to, to not let these worries and fears shape our life so powerfully, then this becomes a generational issue where we nurture these same fears and worries and expectations in the next generation. So uh, a man named Alden Rosenfeld, who's a child psychiatrist and author of a book called um, The Overscheduled Child, um, he, he writes, overscheduling our children is not only a widespread phenomenon, it's how we parent today. Parents feel remiss that they're not being good parents if their kids aren't in all kinds of activities. Children are under pressure to achieve, to be competitive. I've met sixth graders who are already working on their resumes so that they'll have an edge when they apply for college. We place the same fears and the same worries within them, which lead them to develop the same expectations um, by filling their schedules to max capacity. Uh, if we have more than one child and, and we're, we're seeking to max out the schedules of all our children, um, we are teaching them these same worries and fears and setting them up to set the same expectations. And even more so than for us, the schedules as parents get even more ridiculous because they aren't just filled with our own fear-driven busyness in our own vocational or social circles, but now they're also filled with these appointments as chauffeurs and cheerleaders for our children. We need to organize our family calendars with the help of 
you know, eight different colored markers and a, and a, and a Google supercomputer. And we stare at that calendar, looking for the rest and the leisure and the fun and the open spaces that just aren't there. And then when we finally agree to stop chasing a, a far too busy schedule out of fear of losing or falling behind and to take a vacation, um, we can experience this odd marriage of materialism and, and, and egoist individualism telling us to make sure that we take the right kind of vacation so that we add another experience to our resume of experiences or so that we gain enough social capital to stay one up on the Joneses by worrying about our vacation being better than theirs. And then we wonder why our vacation wasn't restful or fun when it's been influenced so heavily by these worries and fears and expectations. So the evidence of this dynamic that worry and fear about having the right schedule, calendars filled and structured in order to make us better than the competition and to therefore win access to what we perceive to be finite amounts of money, power, opportunity, notoriety, safe, safety, stability, et cetera, et cetera. It is burdening us with the exhaustion and stress inducing expectations of this dangerous egoist individualism. The, uh, the evidence of this is astounding. About a decade ago, USA Today published the results of a multi-year poll about how people were perceiving time and their own busyness. The results revealed that in every year since 1987, people reported that they were busier than the year before, with 70% responding that they were, they were either busy or very busy, and a mere 8% reporting that they were not very busy. When asked what they were sacrificing to their busyness, 56% said they were sacrificing sleep, 52% recreation, 51% hobbies, 44% friends, and 30% sacrificing family. Throughout the study, they, they learned that in, back in 1987, 50% of, of people ate at least one family meal every day. But by uh, 2008, this was down to only 20% of respondents, a part of a daily family meal. According to uh, Joseph Bienvenu, who's a uh, psychiatrist and the director of anxiety disorders clinic at Johns Hopkins, more and more are suffering from so much overscheduling that they can't sleep, they can't think clearly, they can't make time for important activities like exercise. And he wrote that Emotional distress due to busyness manifests as difficulty focusing and concentrating, impatience and irritability, trouble getting adequate sleep, and mental and physical fatigue. I wonder how many of us feel that. Dr. Susan Colvin, who practices internal medicine at Mass General, wrote in 2013, in the past few years, I've observed an epidemic of sorts patient after patient suffering from the same condition. The symptoms of this condition include fatigue, irritability, insomnia, anxiety, headaches, heartburn, bowel disturbances, back pain, and weight gain. There are no blood tests or x-rays diagnostic of this condition, and yet it's easy to recognize. And the condition is excessive busyness. Tim Kasser, uh, 
who's a professor at Knox College in Illinois, conducted research in the 90s that found a direct correlation between uh, the, the uh, sig significance or, or prioritization of individualistic pursuits and, and then the well-being or lack thereof of that individual. So when people said that pursuing individual success was important to them, they also reported lower levels of a sense of well-being. On the other hand, when people were what um, Kasser called time affluent, his way of describing those who have room in their schedules uh, rather than them being overfilled, lives of greater simplicity, these folks were able to pursue values and activities like personal connections and a relationship to the broader community. And Kasser wrote that in turn, these values in turn do a very good job of satisfying our psychological needs and promoting higher levels of well-being. So the time affluent weren't so caught up in the rat race of being overscheduled and, and excessively busy that they didn't have enough time in the time bank to afford the good stuff. They had time for the good stuff to actually live, to actually respond, us, me, you, us as a people together to the complexity and burden of busyness in ways that bring true simplicity, the actual lessening of worry and fear and the actual increase in our well-being. We have to know that it's not just a, a physical problem. It's not just a surface issue. Um, if, we, if we only respond physically by working ourselves into this place of exhaustion and confusion and then taking an emergency vacation to disconnect and rest, but we don't deal with the root of the problem, then we just set, step right back into that same set of expectations and worries and fears. We have to deal with the spiritual root, these, which is these expectations we hold deep within our minds and spirits that busyness and accomplishment are our way to happiness and comfort and safety and the good life. If we don't name the lies that our worries surrounding our scheduling are telling us, then we will have the same expectations and we will inevitably still feel burdened. So first we have to deal with the spiritual root and only then after can we set ourselves up for better and simpler daily living by resetting, by redefining priorities, by reducing multitasking, by learning to get better at saying no, even to important things. But before we do any of that, we have to listen to a voice within us telling us who we really are and how we really relate to one another and what we really ought to do, other than what the voices of, of these instinctual physical tendencies, worrisome and fearful voices that are telling us to choose this rugged individualism, to study, to work, to accomplish, to practice, to skip the family meal, to give our tasks and striving the best of us rather than giving our people the best of us. So I find this voice in the witness and the teachings of Jesus. But as we've as acknowledged in this series time and time again, the golden rule spirituality that he brought to the world, the life of being driven not by self-serving 
uh, out of fear, but, but by a, a commitment to do unto others as we would want them to do unto us, was and is not exclusive to the way of Jesus. Uh, our expectations that come from our physical instincts, they predispose us to act in worrisome and fearful self-serving ways. But the spiritual way of living by the golden rule encourages us to live and act in ways that consider potential positive and loving impact of our lives on those around us. We can retrain our brains to live in a different and a better way if we, if we allow a different spirit within us. So Jesus taught that those who want to save their life will lose it. That those who seek to become the master of their own lives, trying to earn the power, the authority, the wealth, to be at the top of the ladder and to be above any and all competition or risk, those people will lose their lives. They will, they, their heart might be beating, but they won't be alive. They, they will miss out on what life is actually about. He asks, for, for what will it profit them if they gain the whole world, but they forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? What good is the honor of being the valedictorian or that acceptance to college or the career path that takes us all over the world or the promotion that takes us away from our family and friends or all the money and notoriety and and, and power and authority in the world, it, what good is that if one must sell out the rest of their lives for it? And, and what would someone be willing to give up when they're, once they're in that place of being so far disconnected from real life, what, what would someone in that spot give up in exchange to get their life back when they realize that all of these promises they followed were bankrupt and false? We know that some of the most wealthy and powerful people in the world are also the most unhappy and sometimes the most destructive because none of their individualistic pursuits will ever be as meaningful and as worthy as loving relationships. Likewise, some of the poorest are the most happy and generous and fulfilled for they are time affluent and their connection to loved ones and friends in the larger community bring them real and good life. Once when Jesus was at the home of some two sisters named Mary and Martha, while Martha was driven by her expectations of what a good hostess is supposed to do, busy with her many tasks, her sister Mary just sat down with Jesus. And when Martha complained and said to Jesus, would you please tell her to help me? Jesus didn't say, you know, Martha, you're right. The most important thing to do is these tasks. That's not what he said. What he did say is, Martha, you are so worried and distracted by too many things. There is only need for one thing, and Mary has chosen the better part. Our worries about doing the right things in order to meet expectations drive our focus to individualistic tasks. But the one thing we actually need more than the accomplishment of any task is connection, relationships of loving friendship and kindness, mutual care and concern. The spiritual response to busyness, stress and distraction of individualistic pursuits is to adapt our expectations 
to train ourselves to expect that it is relationships with loved ones, friends, and the larger community, and no other accomplishment, authority, title, power, promotion, wealth, skill, or task that make for a good and true and meaningful life. The rest is just a tragic forfeiting of life to gain things that aren't actually worth it. And so what can we give up in return for our life to come back to us? What expectations of individualistic success and accomplishment for our lives can we give up? What appointments are on our individual and family calendars because they're about striving for things that will only leave us wanting, that won't actually deliver us the good life? To what can we say no? What tasks can we acknowledge are important but are not more important than living a good life? How can we intentionally seek more time affluence? so that we can invest more of our time in connecting with family and friends, neighbors, and the community. Instead of striving to make every moment of every day somehow productive for our own benefit, how can we give our lives away for the sake of others in ways that allow us to actually discover a rich and meaningful life? Jesus made the promise, come to me, come to my way of living, all who are toiling and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to his way, all who are living with exhaustion and worry and the constant burden of expectation, and discover a more restful, healthy, powerful, and good life. Decide to do something today that is an expression of an expectation that the best life will be found in connection in relationships. Start small. Use just a few minutes of your time to connect with someone else, to do something for someone else rather than for yourself. And then tomorrow, take another step and then another and then another as your mind and your expectations slowly but surely change for the better. This sort of egoist, anarchist individualism is exhausting, it's burdensome, it steals our life away. Don't let it steal your life away anymore. Use your time in school, at work, at home, out in the community for the sake of relationships and connection and not personal accomplishment. Love people and you will find a more joyful and healthy and meaningful life. Stay home, stay safe, wear a mask, get a vaccine if you're eligible, please. Uh, be well and warm and peace to all.